This episode is brought to you by my good friends at Huzo. Huzo is an acronym for human sound. Huzo delivers uniquely enhanced human toning sounds through headphones as well as through pads placed on your major acupuncture meridians on your body, which are your wrist and your ankles, thereby introducing a specific modulated frequency that are balancing and harmonizing throughout your body. One session takes about 30 minutes, and during that time, a strange series of tones create a natural resonance in your body that Huzo claims counteracts the harmful EMFs, toxins, and stresses you are exposed to during the day or just normal living, all while balancing the body, leaving you with a clear head, improved health, better sleep, and the feeling of calmness and well-being. You can try one at www.thisishuzo.com slash rebel. Use the code rebel25 to save $25. The folks at Huzo even have a great payment solution for you with terms up to 12 months. Check it out. I highly recommend this machine. It has changed my life and calmed me out. Thank you and enjoy this episode. We're gathering all these bits of data, of course, of the day in stage one and stage two and sort of that uh, non-REM stages. We're starting to consolidate those a little bit, but really the interconnectedness that comes in really being able to make the story happen, connect the story. Welcome to the Rebel Health Coach Podcast with Tom Underwood. Armed with truth and knowledge, your journey to a healthy lifestyle can be obtained. Preventative wellness, quality nourishment, and daily fitness routines dramatically improve your outlook on life as a whole. And you'll find the support and info you need to accomplish a healthier lifestyle here. Together, we can empower each other along our journey to an amazing you. Welcome to episode number 109 of the Rebel Health Coach Podcast. One of the biggest contributors to overall health that has little to do with how well you adhere to eating every color in the rainbow of organic produce. How many acres of pasture the meat you eat has roamed on. How dedicated you are to your fitness regimen. How many steps you take throughout the day. The number of hours you don't spend sitting at a desk or even the amount of time you spend practicing gratitude. Yes, all those factors are indeed very important components to a well-rounded approach to optimal health and wellness. But everything I've just mentioned could amount to diddly squat if you're not consistently getting restorative deep sleep. Today, we're going to dive in to restorative deep sleep with the one and only Boomer Anderson of Decoding Superhuman podcast. After nine years in the investment banking industry, Boomer left his successful career to pursue his obsession with maximizing performance. Unsatisfied with broad health generalization, Boomer developed Decoding Superhuman methodology to provide an individualized approach to performance backed by science and data. Today, we're diving into sleep, like I said. And this is a very important episode because, unfortunately, we have an epidemic of sleep disorders. Everything from falling asleep 
to often interrupted sleep to actual insomnia. Sleep deprivation statistics, 37% of 20 to 39-year-olds report short sleep duration. 40% of 40 to 59-year-olds report short sleep duration. 35.3% of all adults report less than seven hours of sleep during a typical 24-hour period. Sleep deprivation has been linked to obesity, diabetes, glucose intolerance, anxiety, cardiovascular morbidity, disease mortality, and increased alcohol usage. Our sleep is needed to restore and repair our bodies. So if you suffer from sleep disabilities and cannot get a good night's sleep, I highly suggest you dig into this episode. It's a long one, but there's a lot of great gems in this podcast of how to restore your sleep, what to look for, and how to fix it. Thank you for listening and enjoy this episode. Boomer Anderson, welcome back to the Rebel Health Coach podcast today. Tom, you know, I always enjoy our conversations. So like I said, before we started recording, anytime you want me back, it's always a pleasure. Ditto. I, I enjoy your conversations and I, I really enjoy my transcriptions, my true blue, my blue quarantine, and then I got the other blue or just blue. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I, we haven't sent you the prototypes for the new products yet. No, so man, I can't gonna... wait. I can't wait. We need, to do, <laughs> we need to do another episode on those. We will. We we certainly will because things are going to be going in a, a very beautiful direction. Yeah, yeah, soon. yeah. I've been following the emails and I tried to hop on yesterday, but I, to the uh, celebration, mm-hmm. I just was tied up studying hormones. <laughs> yeah, and I completely understand that. And hormones, is, there's a hell of a lot to study, right? Oh, man. Um, there's a reason why endocrinologists uh, spend so much time in school. And, you know, what you're referring to was our Blue Anniversary party. Right. Um, and it was our first year or a year since we launched Blue Canatine. Since then, we've also launched Just Blue. And it's been a beautiful year. And so to anybody who's listening to this who's tried it, I just want to say thank you. We've had a lot of fun. And there's going to be a lot of really interesting products coming up this year and next. And I am super excited to introduce those to you. Yeah, I'm excited as well. Base. I'm excited as well because it's a it's a, one of the better products I've tried. And like we were talking to prior, I've, we've both tried a, a lot of different products and mm-hmm. some of them are great. Some of them are not so good. Yeah. It, it's, we, I mean... We spend a lot of time on formulation. And you know what's funny is, is if you look at the transcriptions way of formulating, we are all the initial beta testers in the sense that we're all tackling problems that we have. If you look at blue canatine, that was really a problem that Dr. Ted had with overcoming jet lag and being able to perform. But that was really more of the the mindset that he went into it with. If you look at our sort of future products. You know, there's uh, like, I have a long history with anxiety and you can suspect that we're going to tackle that in our future products. Your tongue may not be blue for that one, maybe a different color, but you can suspect that uh, we'll be tackling that one soon. Oh, the blue tongue's a lot of fun. It is. It is. It gets a lot of looks, a lot of questions, particularly, you know, in the gym, when you're walking around in airplanes, (laughs) you know, it's a, it's a very interesting one. All right, today we're going to tackle something that's very important and even more so now with COVID 
is sleep. We have an epidemic of sleep disorders from falling asleep to insomnia. As a matter of fact, there's some sleep deprivation has been linked to obesity, diabetes, anxiety, as we mentioned, cardiovascular disease, increased alcohol use, and really without sleep, our immune system doesn't get a chance to repair itself or our brain. So let's talk. Let's start off with the importance of sleep in our bodies today. <laughs> uh, that's such a, a great question. And let me just take everybody back here for a moment because it's only relatively recently on the time scale that I've realized the importance of sleep. But let me take you back to sort of younger boomer, if you will. And I was heavily influenced by the words of Nas, who said sleep is the cousin of death. Uh, I was heavily influenced by people um, similar to our former president, but a similar vein, the highly successful people that said, in order to be successful, you didn't really get any sleep. And so from the age of 18 to 30, I slept between four and six hours a night. Just to give that perspective, the average American sleeps about less than six hours a night right now, which is kind of indicative of that epidemic that we're talking about. And you can kind of passport that into other societies and see similar trends. And so I learned the hard way. Uh, Everybody's probably heard my story by now, but I ended up with a cardiovascular issue at the age of 30. Tom, you hinted at brilliantly in the introduction. You know, cardiovascular issues do come with a desynchrony of clocks. But, uh, you know, why is sleep so important? Uh, There's a number of bodily processes that only run during sleep. Let's start with the brain. So, the brain is this amazing organ in our body. Obviously, it kind of, you can't live without it, right? right? And so, the brain, for the longest time, we were unsure of how the brain detoxified itself. And it turns out that the brain has a a system similar to our own body's lymphatic system. If you think about the lymphatic system, it's just a series of vessels around the body that help you detoxify. But the brain's a separate. And so the brain has this lymphatic system. And it's only active uh, during periods of particularly deep sleep. And so during deep sleep, what happens is, is that cerebral spinal fluid goes up and into your brain and helps clear out some of these byproducts, things like adenosine. And adenosine, think of that as just one of the reasons why you feel tired during the day. The tau proteins, amyloid beta, a lot of these things that get trending or, or get sort of trending because of the associations with Alzheimer's, they all get cleared out during sleep. Sleep is also the point where memory consolidation happens. So all of this, think about uh, your life and everything that you're doing right now and everything that you've done today. It's all raw data feeding into the computer that is your brain. At some point, that raw data needs to get processed and put into a coherent set of, well, think of them as stories in order to make sense of what is living. That happens during sleep. In fact, it starts in stage one, stage two, non-REM sleep and starts to go all the way into REM sleep where a lot of it gets consolidated. You have immune system function. This is particularly important during this current situation, right? If you're getting bad sleep, your immune system doesn't get a chance to repair itself. White blood cells, for instance, a lot of that comes and gets reproduced during sleep. 
And then you have your hormones. For anybody listening out here, and I know Tom, you're a gym fanatic like me, and my gym has become very much at home. If you were to look in my office right now, I have like Carol, a pec stick, I have an X3 bar, all of these cool gadgets and everything. And all of that work that I'm doing during the day, all of that work I I am uh, really doing to beat myself up, but but to be in my best shape, a lot of that recovery happens during sleep. You repair muscle. You also go through a lot of hormone production. So uh, you can see there's sort of a cascading effect, if you will, that if you get a shitty night's sleep or a series of shitty night's sleep or decide to take it the way I did and go from 18 to 30 with really bad nights of sleep, well, that can lead to dysregulation of something we're going to probably get into today called the the body's clocks. And that can cascade into, in my case, it was a cardiovascular issue. In other people's cases, it could be something to do with your pancreas, blood sugar. In other people's cases, it can lead to uh, even worse things, right? And so... The sleep is an absolutely beautiful thing. And I think the key message that we're going to get through to you guys today is don't think of sleep as a waste of time because there's a danger among particularly the type A crowd that sleep is a waste of time or seen as sleep is a waste of time. What I want to encourage people to investigate or change their perspective on is that sleep isn't an investment. And just like every other investment, the time that you put into it can often pay copious amounts of dividends. Exactly, yeah. I agree. And, you know, I struggle with sleep only because, well, there's a lot of reasons, but I I am one of those type A people. A, B, I was on a a, a drug called Seroquel, which screwed up my neurotransmitters. And I took myself off of Seroquel and and now reworking on rebuilding my neurotransmitters back to a place where I can sleep. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of hacking on my sleep, but sleep also, I mean, when you deal with weight loss, especially if people during this COVID time who have gained the 15 pounds or the, you know, want to lose The COVID-15, right? Yeah, yeah. And they want to lose it. Sleep is a big one because sleep, the lack of sleep will sabotage your weight loss. So yeah. that's a big one. Also. Sleep has been lack of sleep or very little sleep or very little quality sleep has led to dementia. Yep. And it's a, it's a big, big avenue. And a lot of people try and hack their sleep the wrong way. And we'll get into that today. So let's start off with the stages of sleep because this is really important. Yeah. There's basically four stages. Am I correct? Four stages plus REM. Okay. And so let's kind of break this all down for people, because I think you alluded to some points, right? If you think about one of the things or the one thing that you could do that would ensure that all aspects of your life are better, it's probably sleep, right? You alluded to dementia and that ties into the glymphatic system. You alluded to weight loss and that ties into hormones and blood sugar regulation. And you alluded to, or you didn't quite touch on it, but I know you and I were talking about it before and we've talked about it a little bit on this podcast, but anxiety. And as a person who has had issues with anxiety their entire life, you know, anxiety for me raises when I don't get sleep. And it's certainly manageable, if not non-existent when I do. But let's get back to your question. And so uh, the sleep stages, (laughs) this is a 
a great question because I sit in this lovely world of quantified self very often. And, you know, there's these online forums where people like to bring up uh, their Aura Ring scores, for instance, or uh, their Whoop scores and talk about how they got uh, three hours of deep and uh, three hours of REM or, you know, whatever of one stage and their sleep score is anywhere between zero and 100 and they're bragging about it, right? Well, I think looking at sleep in terms of those those singular stages, if you will, are actually two to uh, five stages in total is kind of the wrong way to look at it because you're then breaking the body down into this siloed process and you're saying, hey, deep is best or hey, REM is best or hey, whatever is best, right? And you know, both you and I have interactions with the functional medicine world, and we know that this is much more of a complex system. It's very hard to look at everything in sort of these esoteric uh, siloed approaches. So when we look at sleep, there's stage, there's five stages. And what we really want to look at is just sort of that rhythm of those stages. So if anything you're going to look at in terms before you even look at duration, you want to see how that rhythm is going. You want to go from stage one, stage two, down into the deep stages, which are three and four, and then back up again. And that's one ultradian, right? It's you typically about 90 minutes long. It varies from person to person. And then you do it again. And then in the third and fourth ultradians during sleep, you hit what is something that is called rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. But let's go into the importance of each of these because I think it's worth talking about because what is not so sexy or said right now is anything about stage one or stage two lights, what is classified commonly as light sleep. And stage one or stage two are places where you initially, we talked or I alluded to earlier about our brain as a computer. And think about your brain just as Google or Facebook monitors data all around the internet. Your brain is monitoring data all around you throughout the course of the day. And it's getting millions, if not billions of data points on anything between color to our conversation right now. And it needs to start to integrate those. And so memory consolidation initially actually starts at stage one and stage two. And the reason why it starts in these two stages is because of something called sleep spindles or one of the things that we know of now. And just like categorically, before I go on any more here, sleep is a fascinating subject. And since we've been doing it since the dawn of humanity, it's kind of shocking how little we know about it. But let's talk, let's talk from that position. And so sleep spindles, burst of activity, which occur every three to six seconds during these lights or quote unquote light stages of sleep, they occur in non-REM. You also have K complexes, which are just sort of these slow waves, which intermittently come out, particularly during stage two, and also aid in memory con- consolidation. So we've got stage one to stage two, which before we're kind of cast off as sort of the light and you never hear anybody brag about their light stage of sleep, but they're actually useful. From stage one and stage two, we go down to stage three and stage four, and that's traditionally what is known as slow wave or deep sleep. And so slow wave or deep sleep is a lot of, uh, frankly, if you were to try to wake somebody up during slow or deep waves or slow wave sleep, you shake them and it's almost like 
your, your muscles are f- essentially frozen. And if you get awoken during deep sleep, it's actually quite startling, painful. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I've had it happen a couple of times where I had like, I don't know, a fraternity brother in college who wakes you up in the middle of the night and you're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Well, that's because you got woken up during the stage where you're supposed to be in sort of a temporary paralysis, if you will. And the stage three, stage four, you have this sort of immune system develop, rebuilding, if you will, because our immune systems are fighting off all kinds of shit during the day and they need some time to regenerate. It's also where that glymphatic system that I alluded to earlier happens. And so your brain all gets uh, effectively cleaned out and sort of refreshed during the, during the course of deep sleep. We also have uh, hormone production. We have muscle rebuilding. And so deep sleep gets a lot of attention. And yeah, if you don't get any deep sleep, you may die. But uh, it's just something that I would say is a part of the whole. And so when we look at then the deep sleep stages and we go more into, uh, I remember one of my favorite movies growing up and still to this day was Wall Street. And there was this scene in Wall Street where Charlie Sheen, who is named Bud Fox, during that movie, was with his girlfriend, sort of wife, if you will, Daria. And I can't remember what Daria's surname was at the time, but they were together. And, you know, Daria was saying because Bud Fox was doing his Gordon Gecko thing and trying to build massive amounts of wealth and not sleeping, he was saying, or Daria was saying, you know, but I'm going to die from a lack of REM sleep. Well, you might not die from a lack of REM sleep, but what are you missing out on in terms of benefits? Uh, there's this joke in in uh, Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, is that REM is sort of the border between rationality and insanity. And so it retunes and find, really just calibrates the circuits of the brain and interconnects all of that data. So going back to that data analogy, we're gathering all these bits of data, of course, of the day in stage one and stage two and sort of that uh, non-REM stages. We're starting to consolidate those a little bit, but really the interconnectedness that comes in really being able to make the story happen, connect the story, happens in REM. And there you don't really have any muscle activity as well. That's partially why you don't act out your dreams. A lot of people during states of REM, but also right before they wake up and shortly after going to bed, have dream states. And so this is why you don't act out act out your dreams, which in certain cases is probably a good thing <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> depending on who you're sleeping next right. to. And as a person who sleeps next to somebody who occasionally does act out her dreams and I get kicked out, I get sort of kicked, you know, it's kind of startling if you did. But in REM sleep, you're not supposed to have any access to, to muscle activity and partially because you are dreaming in certain cases. Yeah, that's a interesting topic of, of getting there. And, and also... Acting out your dreams. I mean, I, I remember one time I rolled over and punched my wife. <laughs> like, I'm sure she appreciated that. She, one, she right? did not. She was like, "Where the hell did that come from?" Yeah. Uh, but there's, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that REM sleep, and there's a lot to be said for light sleep. And yeah, you know, some things, some of these dreams get kind of crazy. I mean, almost like almost like hallucinogenic or. Yeah, and hallucinogenic. Yeah, yeah thank I, you. I completely agree. Right, like, and you know, 
this podcast isn't about dream analysis, right? right? But right. there's there's sort of different theories behind this. Right. Uh, of course, you have Freud and Jung who say a lot of these are repressed memories, which I'm not sure I 100% agree with. It's certainly interesting to pontificate upon right. uh, and certainly interesting to note. But you know, there's certain aspects of this that are maybe more just connecting stories to make sense of the world. And you know, dream therapy uh, or dream analysis is something that's been around for a while and I'm sure will continue to be analyzed to death over right. the next few right. years. All right, let's talk about circadian rhythm and chronobiology. Oh, you tickle my fancy, my friend. <laughs> let's get into chronobiology chron and circadian rhythms. They kind of go hand in hand. They do. They do. And so let's, I think it's worth just sort of defining terms here. And so I'm just going to read something because, okay. you know, some of these academic ter uh, definitions are probably important for people to, to realize. So circadian biology is the study of endogenous psych cyclical rhythms that organisms have evolved with as adaptation to cycles. So think of those cycles as sort of seasons, day-night rhythms, which is what we're going to get into here, and particularly can be shorter than that. But let's talk about first why these rhythms exist, because if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it kind of makes sense, right? Right. So we have trillions of cells in our body. We have numerous microbiota probably in the trillions as well. We have viruses, we have fungi, all of this stuff exists within us. And we have somehow managed to run this body in an efficient way. And, you know, I don't know about you, but it's like, okay, you look at a population that's that size and it somehow manages to run efficiently. Well, why did that efficiency even start in the first place? Well, we evolved from single cellular organisms and there's eventually a marriage into mitochondria. It became our modern day cell in a way. And those cells, in order to run efficiently, started to develop what are called clocks. And these clocks exist in every single cell in our body. And those clocks all report up to something called uh, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And so the suprachiasmatic nucleus is effectively the master clock. It, regulates our day and night rhythm, otherwise referred to as the circadian rhythm. And so think of circa a DSO, about a day, day-long rhythm. So circadian rhythms are about a day. Altradian rhythms are anything that's really shorter than a day. I alluded to those earlier when I was referring to different sleep cycles. And then you have something called the infradian rhythms, which are longer than a day. You can think of a women's menstrual cycle as an infradian rhythm because it is longer than a day. In fact, it's a month. I hope it's longer than a day for most people. Uh, but if you think about all trading rhythms, aside from those sleep cycles, also your heartbeat falls into that one. And so today, mostly what we're going to be talking about is that day-night rhythm or circadian rhythms. Again, why is this important? Well, uh, we do know that managing that rhythm appropriately can lead to better health outcomes can lead to better blood sugar. It can lead to less incidence of cardiovascular issues. It leads to better detoxification. It can lead to better memory or mental performance. It leads to better physical performance. And so managing that circadian rhythm appropriately becomes so incredibly important. And so today, 
we are going to dive into these beautiful biological rhythms in a lot more detail. Yeah, and it's interesting because to me, and you mentioned this about the primary, the man originally, the primitive, primitive man. And I mean, if we go back in time to this, you know, the Stone Ages, and that's what they, and they got up in the morning, did their hunting and gathering, did their eating, did their work, and then, you know, and that's the way it's supposed to work. And, and you know, I, one of the things that I use a lot is a, for measuring cortisol and these patterns and is the Dutch test. And I don't know yep. if you use, but. I'm familiar with it. Yeah. I, I think it's a good way to measure measure the cortisol patterns, mm-hmm. a cortisol awakening response. I mean, I know Absolutely. mine is pretty normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's but some you, people. You get somebody that's got quote, some sort of adrenal issue, and right. the cortisol awakening response is nothing or negative. And you're like, whoa, okay, what do we right. have? You're here? waking up dead. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. I mean, and it's all part of our system. I mean, yeah. So, Tom, why don't I go a little bit more okay. into these circadian rhythms? Because and the penile glands and melatonin and. Yeah, we can get into that. Um, yeah. So, circadian rhythms, uh, yes, it refers to the day night cycle. So, what are some interesting things that we can learn from a circadian rhythm? We know that people who are quote unquote morning larks or night owls, and this is actually uh, getting into something called chronotypes, which is really the particular time of the day that you perform best. Morning larks tend to have have a shorter than 24-hour circadian rhythm, whereas the night owl, the person who performs best during the day, or sorry, during the night, uh, tends to have a longer circadian rhythms, and so longer than 24 hours. And why is that important? Well, most of the world is actually structured in favor of the person with the morning circadian rhythm, but yet, you know, it's very easy to identify this from a genetics perspective and see from a population, it's probably less than 50% of the population is actually a morning lark, if you will. And so you've already got a disadvantage if you're a night owl. And so how do you identify your chronotype? Because that's actually very useful for people. Looking at chronotypes, again, there's a couple, but uh, you can do this either uh, through genetics and genetics testing. And you know, 23andMe actually just went public via a special purpose acquisition company recently, but or is going public right now. You could do it certainly through that, or if you want to do it uh, on a slightly more qualitative way, you can uh, look at Michael Bruce's The Power of When. Mm. Uh, it's a great book, which goes through the different chronotypes and really how to live with your given chronotype. There are certain people that are dolphins, and I, depending on the time of year, either I'm a dolphin or a lion, uh, that Michael Bruce, those are Michael Bruce's terms. And a dolphin is a person who has issues sleeping during the night. And then a lion, think of that as very similar to a morning lark. But uh, let's take then... So chronotypes, I would encourage everybody out there to identify your chronotype. And again, Michael Bruce's book is a fantastic way to do this at a relatively low cost. Uh, Once you have that information, you can start to structure your life in a way that allows you to take advantage of these biological rhythms. Uh, Biological rhythms exist throughout our day. We have productivity rhythms, right? Uh, I'm a morning lark by heart. And so the first thing in the morning, I'm usually tackling a lot of very 
interesting and creative tasks, but my processing usually happens late in the afternoon. And that's not something that people traditionally think of when they think of a biological rhythm, but you have a biological rhythm there. You have times during the day where it's probably better for you to exercise. For men, this could be you know when your testosterone is most elevated, but it also can be just sort of when your energy is, is sort of at, the, at its highest. And if you're one of those people who is chronotype mismatched. And so you're a night person living in a morning person's world, that may be slightly later for you to work out in general. But let's take some of those hormone rhythms that you actually mentioned too, because hormones are certainly important, right? But the two hormones that you mentioned, cortisol, melatonin, those run on almost exactly opposite if they're functioning appropriately rhythms. Uh, you know, Melatonin should be highest towards the beginning of your sleep state or it should raise during the beginning of your sleep state. It's what actually helps you fall asleep. It also plays a significant role in gut health, but we don't necessarily need to get into that today. And cortisol should be highest during its morning. You mentioned cortisol awakening response. You should effectively, between the moment you awaken 30 minutes later, your cortisol should go up by at least 50%, I believe is the level. And then you should have almost this logarithmic curve for cortisol uh, during the course of your day, meaning that it's up in the morning when you wake up and it's effectively allowing you to wake up. And then over the course of the day, it dissipates to when it's later, later in the day, you end up with this state where cortisol is lower and melatonin is higher and allows you to fall asleep. Now, what's interesting about the sleep issues is that when you take uh, this level of data, and you can get this very easily, you mentioned a Dutch test, that's certainly one way to do it. Um, you can get it also in sort of getting something from LabCorp or right. whatever the the big uh, quest. And you can start to look at these different rhythms. And for my clients, because I take everybody through a heavily, a very, very rigorous process with data, I have those rhythms on their file. And you would you would be surprised to see how many people have an elevation of cortisol in the evening that is resulting in some of these sleep issues that we talk about and are concerned with. But again, these are just some of the hormones that that run through these circadian rhythms. You know, certain ones run through ultradian rhythms. You know, leptin is something that comes to mind there. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, these are it's fascinating because if you think about your body and how it's developed, it's developed into such an efficient mechanism that what you really want to do is keep it running. This is where routines become very, very helpful. We want to keep it running very, very efficiently. And the fastest way to not or interrupt that is to get yourself out of routine, out of rhythm, and to really just start to, you can see how very quickly dyssynchrony of the clocks can lead to various undesired side effects. Yeah, right. And, and one of the things that I've noticed for me, I mean, there's a lot of people working out of the house these days or out their homes, but I, I've been working out of my home before it was like for 15 years. Mm-hmm. But recently, took a position at a clinic doing hormone replacement therapy and I had now I have to get up and go somewhere. So I've noticed that my circadian rhythm has changed a little bit because I used to get up in the morning, make my coffee, come into my office and just kind of mellow into my day. And then I would be one of those people that amp up at night and, and do my best studying or prepping for podcast at night. And but now that I'm getting up at 5:30 and doing my self 
care time and then going into a job and then coming home, I've noticed my clock has changed. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 been a struggle a little bit in the beginning. Now, now it's getting better. But the reason I mention is, is there a way you can train your sleep? <laughs> so sleep entrainment is a fascinating subject. And so, so Tom, I mentioned earlier that I work with a, a team of doctors and we help predominantly entrepreneurs optimize their health so that they can go out and change the world, right? And one of the first issues that all of them come in with is sleep-related issues. So can you train your sleep? Um, Yes, there's a whole process of sleep entrainment uh, that we take people through. And you know, let's just talk about some factors that can help in sleep entrainment because I think that would be useful. Um, I mentioned earlier something called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and it sits in our brain and it helps synchronize all of our body's clocks. Now, going back to a basic principle here, if we can synchronize those rhythms, the chances are that you're going to probably sleep better. And what does the suprachiasmatic nucleus take as its number one cue to regulating all of those clocks? It's light. And so when we start to engage in a conversation around sleep entrainment, one of the first things I delve into people with is this idea of light and light regulation. And so if we are looking to build proper rhythms and get into uh, that state, you know, it's helpful to in the morning have some exposure to blue light, but ideally sunlight. Um, And that helps raise cortisol in the morning and it helps get that rhythm into that beautiful logarithmic curve. It helps to get very good exposure to most of your body to sunlight in the morning. Now, I live in Amsterdam. It's February. A week ago, the canals were frozen over and we don't really get that much sun here. And so there's artificial ways you can do this. I have a UVB lamp here. UVB is predominantly used in the production of vitamin D. And so I've basically built my own, but there's other devices out there like the Sperti that can certainly help you get the vitamin D you need. But you can also use lights like the Lumi or Philips makes a light where you can uh, synchronize it so that when you wake up, you get something that is effectively sunlight during the winter or just in general. So light is a predominant regulator. Now let's look at the flip side of this, right? And so you and I both work in, uh, you know, you've worked from home for a long time. And in the evening, you mentioned you get your creative bursts. And certainly there's a good population of entrepreneurs out there that have that same experience. Now, the problem is in our modern day society, we're now exposed to this thing called electricity. (laughs) And electricity didn't really get to us until, you know, a few hundred years ago when Benjamin Franklin, Edison, et cetera, uh, contributed to the production of electricity. Electricity at night is something that from an evolutionary perspective, we haven't been exposed to. And we know that things like blue light and some aspects of green light can contribute to dysregulation of circadian rhythms, in particular, melatonin concentration during melatonin release. And so when you really interrupt those with a computer, which hasn't existed for more than, what, it's what, 40 years now, or maybe a little bit longer than that, if you start to interrupt it with an iPad, if you start to interrupt it with an iPhone, which I remember when the first iPhone came out, you know, it, people 
weren't sitting in front of their phones because they were on, well, maybe if you had a BlackBerry, you were, but you weren't sitting with your Motorola Razor in your bed and flipping through your phone. But now you have your iPhone and you can read books, you can surf the web, you didn't have social media. And so people now spend all this time around light. And so in the evening, light regulation becomes important from the perspective of, yeah, I'm not going to take a computer away from an entrepreneur because they'll fire me right away. But I can use services like Twilight on Android or something like an Iris. Uh, Daniel Georgiev is a good friend of mine on an iPhone to help block the blue light from disrupting those melatonin issues. I can also put F.Lux, which is a free application into my computer so that it changes the color. Iris also has a desktop uh, application as well. And so these services allow you to still kind of operate in that mode of entrepreneur, but also don't prevent you from going to sleep at a, a normal time because you've disrupted your rhythm. So I've talked about light and light and trainment and making sure that you have good light regulation. I like Philips Hue for these things too, for just uh, house lights. Uh, LIFX is another company. I have LIFX in here. And if we were talking at 7.30 PM at night, you would notice that my entire light system turns red. Right. That's in part to entrain the fact that I should stop working, but it also prevents my eyes from getting bombarded by blue light. So rather than just focus on light because we could talk about light forever. Um, Let's go into some other things. So uh, routines are extremely popular right now, right? Morning routines and evening routines. And I think it's worth talking about routines in particular because in this sort of pandemic that we're in, a lot of us have been forced to go from I go for to job every day. And so I have my routine where I go to an office, I go and do things at the office, and then I come home to now the person that was my boss can't really pay attention to me. And therefore, well, hey, I'm going to show up for that 11 a.m. call about five minutes beforehand. Hell, if I'm going to wear pants on this thing because, <laughs> you know, wearing pants is boring. And, you know, I, I think I'll just putz around in the morning. And there's a certain danger to that because, you know, what you're not signaling to your body is this idea of routine. You can think of all of those uh, those rhythms, they run really, really well on routine, but when you start to disrupt them, it can make your body go haywire. And so morning routines become incredibly important during this COVID time. And so we look at things like meditation as sort of anchoring that morning routine. When you wake up, can you meditate? Usually I like to meditate in the morning because it's that tabula rasa moment for me. It's when you know the board is white. I don't have an influx of email, Slack messages or whatever. And that can help really just sort of set the pace of the day really just helping me regulate and manage stress, if you will, Uh, not necessarily preventing stress, certainly, but allowing me to shift perspective when it comes to stress. But you know, having some aspect of a morning routine, having a gratitude practice, because stress will play a kicker in the tail end of your day when you start to talk about evening routines. So having a morning routine and just get one, like, hey, meditate, is probably the number one thing that I try to make all of my clients do. But the next thing after that would probably have some sort of gratitude practice. And you can write down just three things you're grateful for, a person, a place, and something you have to do today. And then you have to look at the other end of the spectrum, evening routines. 
morning routines get a lot of freaking attention, right? Like yep. everybody has somewhat of an erection for morning routines, <laughs> but the evening routines get less of an attention because they're not as sexy. Well, I mean, they kind of are, they help you sleep. And so you want to ease into that evening routine. Evening routine really should be designed for getting you ready to sleep, getting you ready to slumber. And so what are the things that you don't want in your evening routine? Well, you probably don't want to do high-intensity interval training right before bed. You probably don't want to check and answer all of your emails right before bed. You probably want to have a gap there. And so having an evening routine for me starts with my last meal. Uh, My last meal is usually three hours before I go to bed and partially because that will allow my body to have the the rest it needs when I'm sleeping. Uh, You don't necessarily want your body to be digesting food while you're sleeping because the rest of your body is sleeping and trying to do its sort of repair processes and all of a sudden your digestion is like, well damn, I just got this fried chicken and I need to process it, right? You don't really want to do that to yourself. So routines kick off for me with the evening routine and my last meal. Then I'll probably do some sort of meditation again because I love it. And it makes, you know, meditation again is one of those return on time that I think is exponential in comparison to what you spend doing it. I'll go into, again, a pattern where the light has been turned almost all red in my house. I have blue light blockers. Uh, You can either use, I I like raw optics or blue blocks in this space, just because I I know both of the inventors of it. I know the quality of control that goes into it. And, you know, I've done numerous tests on these things and those are the brands that I personally trust. And so you put on your blue light blockers, I'll probably transition over into either a lighthearted Netflix show, uh, nothing super, super intense, but only one, not binging the entire night. And then into uh, perhaps a little bit, something even lighter than that and going to a good book. Now, books are a personal favorite of mine, but in the evening, I switch my books from books where I'm trying to grasp and understand deep information. Like I study a lot of game theory and cognitive biases and those kind of things. But in the evening, I want something that's going to ease me. That's not going to necessarily be a thriller, if you will. It's not going to cause my heart rate to spike. And so I like to read esoteric philosophy because I'm weird like that. But (laughs) you read for a little bit, it starts to sort of entrain that. And so routines become very important in this whole sleep entrainment. We can get into supplementation if you want, because that can certainly help out. But again, I think two key takeaways for people on the sleep entrainment side, uh, look at your light because that tends to be a very big one, particularly in the United States where a lot of people have TVs in their bedroom. Look at your routines, set up a good sleep environment. So you want to sleep in ideally something that's 18 to 20 degrees Celsius or 60 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit. You want to have a, a sleep sanctuary, meaning you know, when you set up your sleep environment, it's really only for sleep and sex, nothing else. So get rid of the electronics, keep the phone out of the room. You can put it on loud outside of the room if you want, but you don't want to do it. And just do yourself a favor. Don't freaking check email the last hour that you're awake because right, right. that is a fast way to just cause those cortisol rhythms to spike. So those are just a few key things that people can use. I agree with you 100% on this one because like my morning ritual is usually... Uh, gratitude, meditation, journaling, some prayer time. Also, 
in the warmer weather, I'd go outside and ground myself mm. in, in the sunshine for 10, 15 minutes on, on a piece of grass without feet, but bare feet. Grounding, by the way, it's a good point on grounding, right? Like there's some studies around grounding that suggest that it can elongate and uh, enhance. So it can elongate your sleep, your total sleep amount and Mm -hmm. uh, enhance your deep sleep. Like I sleep grounded. I have a grounding mat. On oh, my, nice. and and I also have a PEMF device underneath my uh, my bed, but grounding is incredibly important for this kind of stuff. Oh, I agree. And then I, and you know I have this. It's a goofy rule, but it's a ten three two one zero sleep rule. Mm. So ten is the number of hours before sleep in which you do not consume caffeine. Oh, caffeine's an important topic yep. to cover. We can get into that in a little bit. Three is the number of hours before sleep in which you do not eat, which you mentioned. Two is the number of hours before sleep in which you do not work. Mm-hmm. One is the number of hours before sleep in which you do not engage in screen time, hence the reading. And zero is the number of times you hit the snooze button. Yep, definitely. So I'm one of those people, when the alarm goes off, I'm, uh, I don't hit the snooze. I just, it's like, okay, you're just postponing the inevitable. So I just get up. So that's my my little routine at night. I do I have three gratitude in the morning, three gratitude in the evening. Plus, I have I write down things that are on my mind before I go to sleep, mm. just to get them off my mind so I can sleep. That is such a good point, and I want to Tom. If it's okay with you, I'm going to double click on a few of those things. Absolutely. So. You know, the diarrhea journal, as I like to call it, is <laughs> something that I have almost everyone I work with do. Because if you look at sort of causes of people not being able to go to sleep or causes of them waking up, a lot of it is routed in anxiety. And a lot of that is for things that they didn't get done or whatever. And so what you're actually doing with the diarrhea journal, which is something that I keep by my bed, and it doesn't really make any sense to anybody but me, right. is I am... Verbal diarrhea in a written form. So written diarrhea. I'm taking anything that's on my mind and putting it on a piece of paper. And once it's there, I know it's there. My brain over time, and this usually takes a little bit to entrain, so you don't just do it one night, do it multiple nights in a row. And my brain over time begins to trust that whatever I put on that paper, I will know in the morning. I can open it up in the morning, write it in my to-do list, and it's there. And my brain trusts that. And as a result, my brain doesn't say like in the middle of the night, hey, you need to wake up because you forgot to respond to that freaking email. Or hey, you need to wake up because you forgot to respond to X, right? And so the diarrhea journal is actually incredibly powerful for anybody who finds themselves waking up in the middle of the night or not able to sleep. And so I would definitely start there. Almost number, I put it number two after meditation. Let me unpack caffeine and sleep because I actually have a slightly longer rule on my caffeine, Tom, because I'm what is called a slow metabolizer. And like I've done all the genetics testing and to know this, but you can intuitively find this in some people, but also others like myself before I knew this had blunted caffeine receptors. And so 
caffeine gets metabolized by a gene that I believe is CYP1A2. It's a part of cytochrome P450 genes, Mm -hmm. which metabolize a lot of drugs that we intake and all that kind of stuff. A lot of our detoxification processes actually start there. And so caffeine in certain cases can take longer than the traditional, I believe it's what, eight and a half hours Mm -hmm. that is the half-life of caffeine. And so you can take longer for some people. In fact, it can get double as long. And so if you think about that, if you're a person that it takes double as long, uh, which is unfortunate for those people, you may not want to have caffeine at all because 16 hours after you wake up, well, that's right back to bedtime. And that's only the half-life. <laughs> and so you know, with some others, it could be slightly longer. Myself, I have just tested this on myself and I find that it's probably more like 14 hours before bed that I want to stop drinking coffee. So I'll have coffee when I wake up just because I enjoyed the taste of it more than anything else. And then I'll stop drinking it the rest of the day or I'll switch to decaf. The other one that we haven't talked about yet is alcohol. And Yeah, um, I was getting ready to go there. Well, let's go there, Tom. I'll let you you lead the way. There's a lot of people and I've, I've, through my coaching... And by helping people reverse their health and the big one, and especially with COVID, COVID has spiked alcohol use. Yep, of course. And it's a great time to be owning an alcohol company right now. <laughs> yeah, I would, <laughs> I would have to agree. But a lot of people, this is a great subject because a lot of people think alcohol helps them sleep. Yeah. Now, alcohol may help you fall asleep, yep, but it definitely doesn't help you sleep. Yeah, so let's, let's go there because that's yeah, a big one. Let's go there. So, first, does alcohol help you fall asleep? In certain cases, yes. Now, in those cases, I've noticed uh, a correlation between people who have very, very busy minds and are up to a lot of shit in the world and the amount of alcohol that they need to fall asleep. And so in a way, they're kind of using it to numb their brain in order to get to sleep. And so, yeah, can it help you fall asleep? That's great. But um, what does it do to your sleep architecture? We spent a lot of time at the beginning of this podcast talking about those stages of sleep and what you do in those various stages and what the, uh, the effects are and the benefits are of those various stages. And so deep sleep, we mentioned earlier, the benefits being hormone production, immune system repair, brain detoxification. So your brain, which also gets numbed by alcohol in many ways, uh, requires deep sleep in order to have the lymphatic system uh, working. And so here's an experiment for everybody to run. If you have a quantified self-device, and ideally something that is on par with an aura ring, wear it tonight uh, and have two glasses of wine, three glasses of wine and before you go to bed. And I'm talking like ideally a within a couple of hours before you go to bed. And you'll see that your deep sleep is going to get absolutely freaking torched. Mm -hmm. And correlate that to subjective feeling the next morning. Okay, now go for four to six weeks without alcohol and see how you feel then. And then track your deep sleep as well. Does your deep sleep improve? And how do you feel? And how is your immune system? How is your vitality? And almost universally, when I do this with people, it's better. Uh, and we're just talking about subjective feeling. I th- I'm sure objective feeling or objective measures are going to be better, better if you go six weeks without alcohol. And what I just want people to encourage themselves, look, I'm fine with drinking. I'm fine with drinking alcohol. I occasionally indulge in good wine because I enjoy it. 
I like to space that out before I go to bed. So I'm not taking in more than a couple of glasses of wine, but I'm also spacing it out well over several hours before I go to bed because I don't really want the alcohol in my system when I'm asleep because that deep sleep is so important to everything that we do. And so just I would encourage people to check the reasons why they're drinking. I'm totally fine with drinking and I think it's a great way to tap into a moment and really enjoy a social atmosphere. And if there's anything that's uh, that's extremely healthy and one of the things that we're missing out in this pandemic is being social. And mm-hmm. so if alcohol helps you tap into a moment and be social, by all means do it. But just remember the cost. Everything comes with a cost, right? And so the cost in this case is deep sleep might get torched. And if your deep sleep gets torched, well, those beautiful bodily processes that all run on these rhythms, which is the whole point of this show, all get torched as well. Yep. And so alcohol to me, look, do it in celebration. Beware of doing it right up until bedtime. Space it out a little bit. Pick your booze wisely. Natural wine tends to be less less detrimental on performance the next day. But I mean, even then, it's still going to cost you something, right? right. Uh, but at the same time, like, don't just stop drinking because there, there's this sort of movement or these types of people that all of a sudden they'll just stop drinking because they heard it's healthy and all of a sudden they're just miserable because they're not able to tap into that level of friendship. Social companionship and social interaction is incredibly important. So if that requires booze from time to time, yeah, sure, go for it. But just know that there's a trade-off, right? There's a couple key words there. Natural wine. Yeah. And that's something that's hard to find and and usually pricier. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hook you up on that one. Okay. It's actually better that you're in the U.S., but keep going. All right. So, yeah. So that's one thing. But the other thing is, I, I was just reading an article, I think it was in, from January, the University of Sussex mm-hmm. conducted a survey to find out what happened when 800 people took part in dry January and, I stayed, mm-hmm. and stayed away from alcohol for the first month of the year. Seven out of 10 of those people reported the stop drinking for one month reported better sleep. Yep. So. The one thing is, and I want to say this, is that alcohol actually stimulates your sympathetic part of your brain, mm-hmm. your fight or flight. So that's when you drink, instead of thinking that you're relaxing and going into the parasympathetic mode, you're actually going into a, uh, the fight or flight mode. And think about that if you're somebody who's already in the fight or flight flight mode, mode. which a lot of us have careers that cause us to be in fight or flight modes. A lot of us have, you know, relationships that cause us to be in the fight or flight mode. So you're just doubling down on that. Especially with COVID. I mean, a lot of people are severely stressed and anxious Mm -hmm. right now about a lot of things. I mean, whether it be the job or the kids at home or the husband and the wife fighting or, I mean... We're operating in a fight or flight mode way more than we're operating in the rest and digest mode. Mm-hmm. So that's something. Now, I want to really talk about, and I'm going to put some links in the show notes for that, and also blue blocks, because I love yeah. my blue blocks. I love Iris. I got that on Iris on all my, all my electronics. 
let's talk about wearables and track them in sleep. I use my Apple Watch. I really gonna. I'm gonna. I just been looking at the Aura Ring, but there's also with this whole wearable thing. There's also a downside to this. Oh yeah. So let's talk about wearables and the positives and the negatives. Yeah. So with anything, I always like to define terms first because you know what are we referring to when we're talking about wearable technology? We're referring to anything that can go on your person and track something about you. So in this case, your cell phone tracking your steps, that's wearable technology. It's also, it can be something on your ankle. It can be a ring on your finger, et cetera. And so these, and I came into the health world and quickly became a part of what was this esoteric group on the internet called Quantified Self. And there we use self-quantification, and that could be anything as little as a spreadsheet to track subjective feeling or hours of sleep or number of alcoholic beverages. Like I have spreadsheets from the late, sort of the late, no, not late 90s, maybe maybe some from the late 90s, but certainly the early 2000s where I was starting to track things like coffee and and alcohol and that kind of stuff and just seeing subjective feeling and how that would lead to anything to sexual performance that day to to how I perform in my workouts. And so that's a way to do it sort of free and a way to do it without these wearables, if you will. But the wearables are a way to gather information passively. If you think about a spreadsheet, the one downside to that is that you have to engage with the spreadsheet. You have to think about it and you have to put in a data point. Whereas a wearable, no matter what you choose, should be able to gather data on you passively. Now, these wearables, you can stratify them in a different different manners, right? Like there's sort of the lower tier wearables that don't cost very much, sort of less than $100. There's $100 to $300. And then there's sort of the $300 and up, like the iWatch in some ways, or the Apple Watch or whatever they're calling it these days. The the other ones in that category, sort of Whoop or et cetera, are all quite good devices. Biostrap would be another one. They're all quite good devices and they could help you in certain ways. So Let's talk about why somebody may want to buy a wearable. Wearables to me serve a number of different purposes, but the the one that the average person, other than somebody who's a technologist who's just interested in this stuff, the average person should buy a wearable to bring awareness to something. It helps bring awareness to something you may not have been paying attention to for or to before. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it helps uh, really in that bringing awareness to something, it can help accelerate behavior change. Because at the end of the day, gathering passive data and doing nothing with it is just an excuse to to waste money. But if you take that passive data and use it to create something called feedback loops. So take, for example, that wine incident. If you have a couple of glasses of wine before bed and you pay attention to deep sleep, you correlate that with subjective feeling. And you say like, hey, I had a couple of glasses of wine last night. I feel like crap. My deep sleep is next to zero. Next night you go and you say, I'm not going to have that wine. 
and your deep sleep's better. You do it again, and all of a sudden your deep sleep's better. And pretty soon you've given up drinking or shifted it to a different time of day because it allows you to sleep better, allows you to build healthier habits. So awareness, certainly number one. Number two, accelerating behavior change. And number three would probably be some sort of training, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're doing training for a particular event, like I ran the Brussels Marathon, well, the last time they ran it, which was actually over a year ago now. And I did that in under six weeks of training, but I did that because I was monitoring almost everything I was doing to ensure that I wasn't going to screw myself up. And so those are kind of the reasons behind it. And there's people that get into this world. And as a person who's done this myself, I warn you, there's a tipping point. And so there's a point where this stuff becomes beneficial. It brings awareness to stuff. It brings awareness to things you never felt before. It helps you train for something. It helps accelerate behavior change. And then there's a tipping point. And it's like everything. In, in medicine, they call it a dose-dependent curve. Well, maybe there's a, a wearable-dependent curve, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at data and sort of at some point, you'll get to this point where you're like, okay, the data is now telling me how my day is going to be and it affects me in a negative way. And case in point, I recently took off my Aura Ring. Uh, why? Because I would look at my Aura Ring score in the morning. And if I was less than 90, I thought the day immediately was going to be uh, a less than stellar day. And by doing so, I've in effect actually just put myself as the perfect example of the placebo effect and that my day could have been fine. (laughs) But because I had a, a screen, a beautifully designed user interface that told me that my day was already less than a 90, that I had somehow handicapped myself from the start. And so that is a perfect example of why somebody may want to, why, why wearables can hinder you. For instance, uh, you have people that are testing SpO2 as sort of a measure of uh, blood oxygen concentration. Mm-hmm. And they will, they will look at these numbers and say, well, they would get very, very negative on themselves if they don't hit a certain SpO2 number while doing something like Wim Hof or for the example, the other one would be uh, Patrick McCown's Oxygen Advantage in sort of doing those breathing techniques. And so the moment that it affects you in a negative way, meaning that you are no longer you are no longer using the wearable as a tool, the wearable is using you mm-hmm. in a way, that is a time where you can evaluate something other than wearables. And it may be good to just go back to a paper journal for a while. I can tell you from experience, and I've tested probably hundreds of wearables at this point, that I only use them for a period of time. I'm buying a wearable to... And I won't necessarily throw them out because they may come back and I may need to reevaluate something. But I use a wearable to bring awareness to something. I use a wearable to change something. Or if I'm training, and the moment I have accomplished those, I'm not using the wearable. I think that there are times where there's certain things that I enjoy longitudinal data for. Things like weight to me, particularly in COVID, are very, very useful in terms of measuring that almost every single day steps become very useful and you can do that passively. You're going to have your cell phone on you anyway. And then there's in steps again in COVID because we're all sitting at home and we want to make sure that you're getting at least 7,000 steps a day. And I aim to do that before I even sit down in front of my computer. Now, these wearables, again, the key is, is are you master or are you slave, right? Mm -hmm. And 
If you are master of it, it means you're using the data effectively and you'll move on from the wearable when you no longer need it. If you are slave to it, the wearable is telling you how your day is going to be and you abide by that. And that's not a state that I want to be in. I want to touch on some sleep hacks. Oh, yeah. And I know some of my favorites are my, my Huzo, as I've mentioned before, which is, stands for human sound. I just love that machine. Epsom salt bath is one of my favorites before bed. Mm-hmm. Blue blocks. And then we can go with supplements like melatonin. I've, I've even went as, while trying to rebuild my trans, neurotransmitters, I tried something by John, uh, Dr. John Lawrence called the Sandman, mm. <laughs> which is a suppository, mm. which is 250 milligrams of glutathione. And 200 wow. milligrams of melatonin. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite a high dose of melatonin. Yeah. And it has some probiotics in there and a little bit of CBD. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I heard about it and I'm kind of like you. I had to try it to see what it does. And yeah, it definitely puts you to sleep. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so For sure. You know, there's a lot of them out there. I, my favorite says tryptophan, ashwagandha. GABA, but let's talk about hacks and then I'll let you finish it up. Yeah, sure. So looking at hacks, I think it's first worth identifying (laughs) for anybody that gets into this uh, sleep hacking. You want to identify why you're not sleeping well. First off, are you waking up in the middle of the night? Are you not able to get to sleep? That's a a first point of identification. Then get really, really real with yourself in terms of what's your mental state. Are you in a state of anxiety? Are you in a state of depression? There are very few people that are actually in the middle on that one. And start to really acknowledge that. And that's it's okay, no matter where you are. It's just being able to acknowledge that will help you get somewhere. And so let me kind of... I'm going to riff riff through a few things that I've seen work with myself, but also with a number of different clients. And I'll start with sort of the ones that don't cost anything. Meditation as by far like almost every single one of my clients does it um, or is in the process of learning how to do it. Gratitude. You mentioned it. Your state of mind when you go to bed means a lot. If you are going to bed pissed off, the chances of you having a worst night's sleep, and I don't exactly know if there's a scientific paper on this, is is probably significantly higher. Uh, reading uh, something different. So I like right. to read philosophy, certainly important. Light regulation, I've already touched on extensively. From a diet perspective, lurking at early time restricted feeding, uh, the mm-hmm. studies around this had people stopping eating around 3 or 4 p.m. in the afternoon. That seems to be very not so social. To me. And so even if you were to eat slightly later uh, and just had a general time-restricted feeding pattern, it's very good for blood sugar. This is very good for COVID in general, in the sense that you're at home and very close to your refrigerator all the time and keeping eating windows is a very effective way to do all kinds of things. But also having protein as sort of your last meal that will help really kick you into that parasympathetic state. Identifying your chronotype went over that already. But let's talk about the tools because the tools are really interesting. And I think sometimes people just need a tool to kick them in the right direction. Blue light blockers are first and foremost for me and just sort of blue light regulation. So blue light blockers, blue blocks, uh, raw optics, those guys all do really, really well. Grounding 
you can get a grounding mat for relatively cheap. And if you're like, I have a grounding mat sitting beneath my desk right now and I stand on it all day long. I go outside and play in the, the field near my house, which is a park, if you will. Uh, I go for walks in nature, et cetera. Just exposing yourself to earth, there are numerous benefits to that. And getting a grounding mat if you live in a city is a perfectly acceptable way to do this. I have a PEMF mat underneath my bed, which actually simulates human's resonance. So the pulse, the electrical pulse that the earth has and helps me recover faster. I know it helps me because I've looked at my heart rate variability both before and after and have seen numerous benefits. Now, let me talk about the supplement side of things because I think you can certainly go down the gear side of it, and I, I have a lot of that right. stuff. But the supplements become very interesting. You mentioned tryptophan and melatonin already, so I won't really go too much into those. 5-HTP is another tryptophan alternative there. Magnesium, high-dose magnesium for me, I guess high dose versus what is the recommended daily allowance and the recommended daily allowance to me is kind of funny because those were calculated <laughs> those were calculated during world war 2 which you know it's things need to get adjusted magnesium i take close to a gram every day and it's a cofactor in 300 plus reactions in your body one of which is helping you sleep a little bit better and so that one appears to help me sleep quite a bit um, you can look at different forms of it. The one that I would tend to avoid unless you have certain constipation issues, magnesium oxide. I like to delve into the esoteric and the internet and kind of research things. And so rather than giving people some standard ones, I want to go into some of those nouveau things. And some of these will be involved in our future products and transcriptions. Kava, K-A-V-A, not to be confused with the Spanish sparkling white wine, is a root that comes from the Pacific Islands. The scientific name, I believe, is Piper Mysticum. And it's an anxiolytic in the sense that it helps lower anxiety. And there were a whole bunch of... There's actually a almost a global ban on kava a number of years ago mm. because the supplement companies, as supplement companies tend to do, they take the wrong parts of the plant, bottle it up and sell it to you. And they were taking the wrong parts of the plant and some people got sick. But if you go to and get noble kava, N-O-B-L-E, noble kava from a good supplier that comes from Vanuatu or somewhere around there, uh, you are likely in good hands. And the root is in particularly the point that you want to hit. And it's an anxiolytic. And you know, there's people out there that have taken themselves off of benzos on it. And that, again, no claims there, but you can read those anecdotal stories as well. I find it very relaxing in the evening. It tastes like crap, but it's very relaxing. Um, the other one that I find interesting in the supplement space is something called N-nicotinyl GABA, which in Russia is called Picamelon. And this, if you look at the GABA molecule, and there's people that take GABA all the time, you know, GABA itself is a very large molecule and has a hard time plastering the blood-brain barrier. Picamelon or N-nicotinyl GABA can pass the blood-brain barrier. And this is particularly good for people, the two, the kava and pakemelon are particularly good for people that have anxiety-related issues to sleep. So they're either stressed and that's what causes them to wake up or they can't get to sleep as a result of that. Then I like to go into the cannabinoids. And so we're not talking about the 
THC here. In fact, there's some suggestion that THC is not the best thing to take before bed. Delta 9 THC, that is. Delta 8 is slightly different. But there are two in particular that I like that are not CBD. You've already mentioned CBD, so I'm, I'm going to let you cover that one. But uh, CBN is cannabinol, and this is actually the first cannabinoid ever isolated, and it was isolated slightly before the Great Depression. And that one, I've, I take it almost every single night now and have found it to elongate my sleep by approximately 30 minutes. And I'm a person that has never really slept beyond seven hours and 15 minutes. The other one is cannabigerol and cannabigerol is more of a, it's got a pain effect. It's got an uh, anxiolytic effect. It's a beautiful compound and it's kind of what I think is going to be the next CBD. Mm. Uh, I encourage people to check both of those compounds out, but that gives you really a lot of stuff to play with. Um, right. And yeah. you know, I don't want to rant for too long because no, no, it, no. otherwise I'm not going to leave room for a round two <laughs> or three. Yeah, I agree 100%. The one thing that I we haven't talked about and it's something that needs to be mentioned because it's kind of the elephant in the room is the EMFs yeah. emitted by your wireless routers mm. and your phones. And I people laugh at me because I walk around with this little protector on my phone and they laugh at me. Like, but I, I think just a it's something to be mentioned because it does have some some negative impacts on our lives. Yeah, sure. So, so electromagnetic frequencies right. or electromagnetic radiation. I'm sure that there's some scientists out there that would disagree with me, but for the purposes of today's conversation, I'll use those terms interchangeably. Let's go back to that evolutionary perspective, right? So from an evolutionary perspective, electricity was invented when? couple hundred years ago, right? Right. We have these beautiful meat suits that we live in that have developed over centuries and centuries through this process that we now know as evolution. And in that process, only relatively recently have we been introduced to an electromagnetic frequency that is greater than Schumann's resonance or 8. Is it 7.8 hertz or 8.7? I can't remember. I think it's 7.8. 7.8. So, you know, you're only introducing this higher frequency of electromagnetic radiation relatively recently, in fact, uh, predominantly since the invention of the cell phone. Um, but what does that do? Well, it can cause disruption to a lot of bodily processes. Now, the problem here is, and I don't want to step in too many landmines because you, when I say EMF, people automatically have this image of the tinfoil hat, right? right, right. But the problem here with the studies, and there's a few of them that are very good, but there's some that are cited that are like eight-person studies in the Philippines, uh, and that's not necessarily great. But we do know that it can disrupt things like your mitochondria. It can certainly disrupt, for the purposes of this conversation, sleep. So let's look at just sort of a common, like what I like to call a checklist in terms of uh, EMF, EMR, and how to make sure that that doesn't disrupt your sleep. If you want to do this very, very, very thoroughly, you can hire a building biologist to come to your home to do the electromagnetic radiation tests, etc. You can also buy one of these kits off of Amazon and walk around your room. And the key there is you want to make sure that where you're sleeping is not a very high point of EMF and EMR. 
And if you live in a condo complex as I do, or if you live in a city, making sure that your windows are not like you're not right outside of a power line is very, very important uh, because you don't necessarily want that stuff hitting you consistently. You can picture it as an electromagnetic wave beaming into your body effectively. Uh, so making sure that you're not near power, measuring it, of course, is that measuring always matters and just making sure that you're not, particularly where you sleep is not impacted by it. Some easy ways to reduce your exposure here are uh, turning off your Wi-Fi at night. Believe it or not, your Wi-Fi doesn't need to be on at night. You can get a kill switch. Those definitely work very, very well. And in fact, you know, was particularly when I'm home alone, I'll use a kill switch very frequently. Now. The other things that you can use to kind of, or that you should check off the box, making sure you don't sleep near a power outlet, because even if it's not plugged in, you may be getting some stuff that's uh, kind of spewed off and into your brain and you don't really want that, do you? And then I would just kind of look at just other ways to mitigate. So making sure that you're grounded or spending time grounding definitely helps. Making sure that your cell phone, when it's in your pocket, is on airplane mode. Uh, <laughs> You can picture it as like maybe not quite literally, but very close to putting a microwave on your private parts if you don't. Um, there's women that wear these uh, sports bras and they're running with their cell phones. And every time I see that oh. with like the cell phone and the sports bra, I'm like, that's not something you want to do, right? <laughs> and, you know, putting your phone in airplane mode is the fastest way to mitigate that sort of EMR exposure. Other companies like Defender Shield, uh, in particular, is the one I trust in this space, is very, very good at uh, producing products that appear to mitigate EMF and EMR. You can go the full Monty here and put a Faraday cage around your bed. That gets quite expensive. But um, there are, again, simplistic ways that I like to do these things. Putting your phone in airplane mode, uh, there's a chance that you may miss a call, but you can always return it later. Right. Uh, when it's in your pocket is certainly a useful way to do it. Then grounding, of course, and then making sure you just regularly monitor your nutrients because... This stuff can do interesting things to nutrients. And I, I just know it from monitoring my own self over time. Yeah. So before we close, is there anything I want to add today before we close out? I mean, if you want me to talk about transcriptions, I can. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Not, Go into, let's cover that one more time because I my code for discount is rebel. Yeah. So, but that's, yeah. I mean, that's one of my favorite prop. I mean, I, and what, what do you? Uh, I'm blue what do you right get? now. You're blue right now. But what types of things do you use it for, Tom? I use it for working pre-workout. It's, it's actually become a, a, a big staple in my pre-workout. It also, when I've got a study pre-podcast, because it keeps my mind. It really works for like communication skills and my and the freshness of my ability to. Create studying for exec, you know, diving into something like hormones or hormones, but all I've been doing lately. But this, like prepping for a podcast, just, I'm getting ready to do one on microdosing. Oh, that's a topic that I can talk about too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could do that another time. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so it, it basically cognitive function as far as cognitive function goes. And I'm really looking forward to your new stuff that's coming out. and. 
you know, we could you could touch base before we close out on on some some of the recent. Yeah, sure. So, look, just to recap for people, Transcriptions uh, is a part of a holding company called Smarter Not Harder. We have a nonprofit that seeks to teach practitioners, guys like Tom, myself, how to optimize uh, for health rather than treat disease, uh, but also doctors as well. Because if you think about it, a lot of doctors don't get taught how to optimize for health when they're in medical school. The nonprofit obviously needs a for-profit arm. And uh, if you look at the way we optimize for health and health optimization medicine practice, it's predominantly through nutrient and sometimes hormone balancing. Those things take time. And when your client is in front of you, occasionally they have an issue that needs to be dealt with right away. And uh, the first products that came out of that, uh, and really the reason why transcriptions exist is to plug that gap, if you will. And so the first products that came out of that were out of necessity uh, by the founder, Dr. Ted, and my mentor. And he really said, look, I'm traveling all over the world, just as I do. And I need something that allows me to have verbal fluency that allows me to have um, you know, good memory, allows me to perform at my absolute best as soon as I land. That came blue canatine. And it's one of uh, the most novel nootropics on the market and something that we're particularly proud of. Uh, through building what we call now the Trobellion, uh, which is our following of immensely grateful and immensely great and just beautiful people. Uh, we actually came up with a second product called Just Blue. And Just Blue is pure methylene blue, pharmaceutical grades, and none of that heavy metal shit that'll disrupt your Krebs cycles and prevent you from producing ATP. But we give you good pharmaceutical grade methylene blue. It optimizes your mitochondria and that's 16 milligrams, which there are some studies out there that you can read as to what the benefits are. But uh, I mean, methylene blue is great because it helps produce ATP as an electron donor in the mitochondrial complex. It's also a, it also helps with spatial and non-spatial memory and it's just a beautiful compound. And so the future of transcriptions is actually quite crazy. We have uh, anywhere between six and 12 different products sitting on dockets, just sort of waiting to get launched. And in the next couple of months, you'll be seeing us tackle other problems that people face right away. And because we're doing everything for that health optimization lens. So you can look at anxiety as something we've talked about extensively that may be coming out before summer. And it will feature some of these compounds that I've talked about here today on the podcast. So stay tuned. And you know, Tom, we'll give you ample heads up before that comes yeah, out. Awesome. And we just want to uh, thank you and your following for all your support. It's amazing that you love the product. And I'm always happy to have a conversation with you. Awesome. Uh, not too far from my brother, so we may be able to make yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Downtown Roswell. Downtown Roswell. Here we come. Yep. All right, buddy. Thank you so much. I appreciate and, taking the time and your wealth of knowledge and very smart, smart man. And I appreciate you taking the time to be with me. Making me blush, Tom, but ah, I really, appreciate, I, I really hey. appreciate the conversations. And congratulations with you in the soon couple couple months or yeah, it's not too long now. I'm going to okay, be good. married. I've avoided it for this long, but you know, I'm, good for you. Be, good I'm for looking you. forward to that. Good. Thank you, Tom. You're welcome. 
Thank you for joining in today with the Rebel Health Coach, Tom Underwood. And be sure to subscribe to the show so you can catch all the episodes. With desire and commitment, you can implement a lifestyle of wellness and fitness. For the support, encouragement, and tools you need to be successful, visit TomUnderwood.net.